Chapter 15 Into the Deep Kairuru, 1959 to 1967 It is uncertain who designed the Kairuru badge in 1959 or who chose the motto the motto Look in Altum put out into the deep Gospel of Luke chapter 5 verse 4 While the Latin language minimal Kairuru symbolism and the western heraldic design of the badge may be elements that would be done differently today the motto put out into the deep certainly captured the boldness and risk taking which was essential for the two Marist pioneers as they began their work on Kairuru. School begins. It was not long before the 44 students were divided into two classes, Brother Baptist Fortner taking Standard 7 and Brother Kenyuchin dividing his group into Standards 5 and 6. The education system at the time went from Standard 1 to Standard 9. The two brothers adopted a typical no-nonsense business-like approach, launching into the deep right from the start. Kenyut here describes a minor problem with punctuality. Quote, the first few days school began well. It wasn't long before it rained. I'd gone up for a bit of bread and butter. Midday. We had staggered through a few hours of the morning mare. The boys went down to their cow-cow or their sago. I went up to Baptist at the house up top, had a sandwich, and it started to rain. But it didn't matter. School started in the afternoon. At that stage, we were still on a regular program, typical of Australian schools. So, at half past one, school starts. I went down to the classroom in the rain, and nobody was there. The classroom was down on the first level, coming up from the airstrip. No students! Not a single one! I had rung the bell. It was a big gas bottle. No response. So, I went down to the dormitory to find every boy in bed, hidden under a blanket or two. They were cold, even though it was only around 31 degrees. Still, everybody was hidden under the blankets. I clapped, as I did each morning, to get them out of bed. No movement. I wasn't sure what level of confrontation was appropriate at this stage, but there was school to go to. So I went around and dragged a blanket off one of the boys. I said, come on, the bell is gone, it's time for school. Oh brother, when it rains, we always go to bed over here. Apparently, the standard practice up to at that time of the arrival of the Maris brothers was that when it rained, everyone just went to bed, any time. It took us some little persuasion to get them to realise that school was at half past one, come rain, hail, snow, shine or what. Anyway, a little bit of friction developed over that. But because we were new, fresh and we had all the wonders of education to dispense, that saved any confrontation. End of quote.
The curriculum comprised English, mathematics, history, geography, science, and religious education. In the absence of adequate or appropriate curriculum materials or guidance, the brothers generally used the teaching methods and content they were familiar with in Australian schools. At first, there were problems in communication as the brothers adapted to teaching in a new culture. Kenyut explains. Quote, We used mainly the Australian style of teaching for quite a while. When we did run into difficulties through lack of verbal communication with the students, we had to develop techniques to encourage them to feed back to us some idea of how well we were going. I remember after a month or so, I had the temerity to run a test. It proved to me that they had gained practically nothing at all. So I had to sit down and rethink a better approach to what I was trying to do. We had not really discussed or evaluated our work very much as we should have done. So each of us was proceeding pretty blindly. On the strength of that test, I could see changes had to happen and I initiated a few of them. Things proceeded a bit better then. One interesting little point. After 18 months in mid-1960, one student by the name of Patel put his hand up and asked a question. That was a big breakthrough. It was the first ever question. Prior to that, they never questioned, never asked, never sought clarification. And we used to carry on, presuming they knew everything. End of quote. In spite of these early problems, the students at that time comment on the fact that they enjoyed the well-organised lessons, respecting and appreciating the brothers' efforts for their education and the care and attention they received. Michael Nangromo from Yanguru, a student at St Xavier's from 1956 to 1962, comments. Quote, Both the brothers were very kind to us. You would never hear them get angry. They would do everything to make us happy. There is no question about the value of the teaching they were giving us. They were like parents to us. They would make jokes. I remember one day we did poorly in Baptist spelling test. He said, You boys must be dreaming about the girls at Yarapos, the girls' school on the mainland. End of quote. The food for the school was supplied partly from mission headquarters at Wirui in Wiwak and partly from villages on the island. The mission supplied mainly sago from its plantations on the Sepik, while taro was the staple food purchased from the Kairuru villages. Initially, large seagoing canoes with sails were used to go around the island to collect food and even for transport to Wiwak. On one occasion, some boys took a student with a broken leg to Wiwak at night in such a canoe. The trip took all night. The arrival of St Xavier's new vessel, the Tau in 1973, was a major step forward in facilitating regular deliveries of food supplies. When Brother Terry Kane arrived in 1963, he set up bigger school gardens to help feed the growing student population. Teacher trainees. Around 1961, a lay teacher, Mr Don Grant, joined the staff. 
Later, he became a priest in the Diocese of Wewak. In 1962, Kenyut began the teacher training section, which ran for just one year. He used one of the school's classrooms for his group of trainees. It was a busy year for Kenyut, as he alone managed two groups of trainee teachers, a certificate, A certificate group and more advanced B certificate group, a total of about 20 trainees. All facilities were shared with the school. Later, the bishop modified his original plan of locating the teacher training for boys at St Xavier's and for girls at Kunjungini on the mainland. The two institutions were merged at Kunjungini. Part of that plan was to advance St Xavier's to full high school status. Kenyut resumed teaching in the high school in 1963. Kenyut recounts a story of one particular teacher trainee who often fell asleep in class. He was surprised when he found the reason. Quote, I used to find that during my lectures, given my usual verve, activity and vigour, I could not stir him at all. His head was on the desk and he just stayed there. The other 17 were bright-eyed and following the lesson. So I decided to check on this. I checked out the health. He was quite fit. Later information proved it certainly wasn't his health. Eventually I had to pin him down. He himself told me, in a moment of honest communication, that in the evening, instead of reclining on the bed appointed to him in our dormitory at St Xavier's, he would head off down to the beach and swim across to Shokalal village on Mushu, a distance of about a kilometre. He went to the nearest point. The lady of his choice would have left the village and moved along the coast a bit. After some activity there, he would hit the surf, swim back, and get a reduced sleeping time in the night, so that in the morning he would spend most of the time catching up on his sleep during my famous lectures. He was a nice fellow. He did well later on. End of quote. Building projects. In those early days, the brothers added to the buildings with more classrooms and dormitory extensions and also did some work in widening and improving the airstrip. Baptist, a practical man and particularly skilled in concreting work, designed the building projects and supervised their construction. Philip Numbos from Craigle Village on Kairuru, one of Baptist students in 1966, later returned to St Xavier's as a staff member and deputy headmaster. He recalls, quote, Brother Baptist was a specialist in practical work. We were picked especially to do the carpentry work. Baptist showed us how to do all the concreting, all the welding, all the roofing. He was our instructor. He got us to do the work. Every work period it was an assigned job for us. Baptist chose us because we were local boys and it was easy for us to collect materials from the local area. Baptist was an expert in concrete work. My schools today, my house and everything else I have built I learnt in my school days from Baptist. I'm proud to say this because when I became a teacher and when I came back in 1973, I was able to tell my students and the teachers that this is what I did. I had built these buildings under Baptist's guidance. End of quote. Bernard Clay, 
a teacher at St Xavier's in 2003, and one of Baptist students in 1965-66, also recalled with much appreciation the skills he learned from Baptist while they were constructing classrooms at the school. They needed gravel and sand for the concreting work. The Kairuru gravel was unsuitable for building, so the mission boat MV Morava assisted by carrying loads of gravel from the mainland. At times the entire school population was used to carry the gravel from the boat to the building site using as a container the large base of the sago palm frond called a pangal. The coastal reefs meant that the Morava, when fully loaded with gravel, could not get close enough to the shore to unload. Large rowing boats, each containing six 44-gallon drums filled with gravel, came as close as possible to the shore. But even then the students had to wade out into the deep to load their pangol with gravel. Kenyut describes the procedure. Quote, the captain winched six or eight of these 44-gallon drums out of the holds and into these boats at the side. We would pull these in with ropes over the reef. Actually, we would get just to the edge of the reef. Then every boy in St Xavier's had a pangol or a bucket or some large container. There were eight of us in the rowing boat, myself and seven or eight big boys from the school filling the pangols. We used large enamel bowls to scoop out the gravel from the drums and tip into the pangol. There were boys on each side of the boat. As the boat got lighter, a couple of blokes would pull us closer in over the reef, so eventually the boys had less distance to walk. The boys just walked back and forth, back and forth, seven hours non-stop doing that. Skin was missing, knuckles were marred, and you went through several of those food dishes. They just broke up in scraping the gravel. I remember the boys came out and stood there, holding their pangle on their head. The waves would come in over their heads. They weren't even up to the level of the boat. They were very high sides, these boats. The waves would actually go over the boy's head. He would hold his breath, the wave would go on, he would reappear, and we would keep on filling the pangle. Then he would turn around and walk back. End of quote. A new headmaster. After only three years, St Xavier's had advanced to the point where the school inspector, Mr V. Mooney, wrote in the report of 1961, You have here one of the best schools in New Guinea. It was a comment about which Baptist was justifiably proud. At the end of 1961, the first Marist headmaster, Baptist Faulkner, returned to Australia. He rejoined the St Xavier's staff for two years in 1965 and 1966, and was then appointed to Pakistan, where he was headmaster of St Mary's High School in Peshawar for the next six years. Brother Beckett Ketera became the new headmaster of St Xavier's in 1962. An Australian from a small town near Bendigo in Victoria, Beckett had qualifications in technical drawing, metalwork, woodwork, mechanical engineering and agriculture. Like many brothers of the time, he gained these qualifications by undertaking evening courses after a full day's teaching. Earlier in his career, he had volunteered to work at a technical school in Nigeria for eight years. In exchange, the British province sent to Melbourne brother Wilfred Harrison, 
whom the Australians affectionately named Willie the Pom. Beckett, 41 years of age on arrival, was a committed educator, educator an old-style Marist, whose methods were characterised by firm, fair, no-nonsense discipline and a demand for the highest standards. His ex-student, Philip Numbos, recalls. Quote, Beckett had a lot of impact in the way of discipline, in the way of excellence, in the way of moulding us young fellows. He was a model for us, in fact. He was tough, but fair. I remember one time I had my hair cut. I had long hair, so I decided to cut most of it short, but I just left a few strands very long. Beckett took us out onto the field that day to play soccer while he supervised us from the veranda of the house. He spotted my hair and he said, Who is this fellow with his hair cut very short but with one long piece? He called me from the field and he said, Go on, cut the bloody thing, will you? So I got it cut. His rules were tough. I remember one day in 1966, he called me into the office during the evening study at 7pm. That morning he had seen us up early before six o'clock, lighting a fire to cook the breakfast. He said, I don't want you getting up early and cooking the food. When the bell goes at six, that is when the fire must be lit. He caught up with the prefect. The prefect said, it was Philip's idea to do that. But actually it wasn't. It was the prefect who organised it. Beckett believed the prefect and blamed me. I took it. I didn't like to blame the prefect. Beckett said, Listen, it's very easy for me to send you up the mountain and down the hill back home to your village, and that's the end of you. So we all knew that he was tough. His discipline was very high. As a student, I felt he was tough. But as I went along in education, I picked up the value of his strictness. He wanted to make us into good people, I appreciated what he did. I think that in later life, incidents like that meant something to me. End of quote. Brother Pat Howley tells the story of Beckett's intervention in a situation of a boy getting sick from custom magic. In Melanesian societies, people often consider that spirits or sorcerers, sorcerers can be the cause of serious illnesses which can be overcome only by stronger magic. Quote, One Wewak student came over to Kairu, and he went back for the holidays in the mid-year. He did not come back at the start of the next term, so Beckett sent a message on the radio saying, Where is he? The message came back. He is in hospital. Beckett was in Wewak the following weekend, and he decided he would visit this student in the hospital. So he went to the market and bought half a dozen oranges for the boy. He went down to the hospital. All the relatives were sitting around the bed. The boy was dying. Beckett went to the doctor and said, What happened? The boy was quite well when he left school just a few weeks ago. The doctor said, This is a custom sickness. Somebody has made magic on him. Beckett said, We'll soon see about that. So he went to the boy's bed and called him. Peter! There was no movement. Of course, Beckett could get terribly fierce. He said again, Peter! 
no movement. He said, listen to me. When I speak to you, you bloody well sit up and listen. Now sit up. The kid sat up. He fed him the oranges and he recovered. It was the turning point of the psychological moment when he could have gone down or up. He was at that stage where he could have either lived or died. All the relatives sitting around the bed were not helping him to get any better. End of quote. An eminently practical man, Beckett had firm ideas on the type of school he wanted. Tight discipline, strong academic performance and solid buildings. He planned to have permanent buildings, solidly made of concrete and cement blocks, with iron roofs and cement floors, built to suit the climate, functional rather than elegant. A new residence for the brothers was completed in 1965. A rather grand building for its time, it was a solidly built two-storey building. Although roughly finished, it was a comfortable house for the brothers, until accidentally destroyed by fire in 1982. Arrival of Brother Terry Kane Another arrival in 1962 was Terry Kane, one of a family of nine children from Warrigal in country Victoria. Terry was always interested in practical things, machines, building, repairs. As a boy, he never aspired to be a teacher, but he did signal his interest at an early age in joining the Morris brothers. He recalls, quote, At age 13, I told the provincial brother Andrew I wanted to be a Morris brother, but I didn't want to teach. Instead, I would do all the other jobs that the brothers had to do from morning to late at night. We don't have brothers who do that, Andrew replied, but you go to Mittagong and try out. End of quote. Terry soon found that in the busy life of a brother, he did achieve his former dreams of doing all the extra things that brothers do, but with the addition of full-time teaching. With his generous nature and diverse skills, he was a natural choice for the mission at Kairuru. It was the beginning of a long-term commitment to the people of Kairuru and the Sepik, 35 years in all. Terry's preparedness to accept a new challenge with great tenacity was typical of many Maoist pioneers. With energy and enthusiasm, Terry launched himself into many projects at Kairuru. His diaries of the time, an excellent record of daily life in the early years at St Xavier's, catalogued the range of tasks that Terry accomplished. Ploughing gardens, bulldozing fields, carrying bricks, concreting water channels, building dams, collecting food, repairing machinery, constructing buildings, carting sand and gravel, and many other tasks necessary to keep the school running smoothly. He still found time to be a full-time teacher. The long hours of demanding work were tempered with island-style relaxation. Fishing on the reef, swimming in waterfalls, animated card nights with the priests at St John's, regular correspondence with home, writing his diary, and reading a never-ending supply of novels. Philip Numbos remembers Terry. Quote, Terry was a good science teacher and a hard-working man. He worked like fury, keeping the fields in good order, working night and day if necessary. After two o'clock we would start work in the afternoon. Sometimes he continued working until seven or eight o'clock at night. He had a tractor light, 
and one on the back to make sure the plough was going right. He was a hard man. He didn't rest. Terry also did a lot of plumbing in the school, setting up the water supply, he and Canute. They both did a lot of work. End of quote. Terry never felt comfortable with the higher levels of science. He felt he was keeping just a few steps ahead of his students. However, like many before him, he found his own struggles to master the material helped him to be an effective teacher. He established a new science laboratory, stocked it with equipment, maintained detailed stock books for the equipment held, and kept the laboratory clean and in good order. Predictably, he enjoyed the practical side of science teaching and thus became an excellent science educator. In later years, he was able to assist younger teachers at St Xavier's and other schools to develop their own science programs. He told the story of the university student who came to study geology at Kairuru. While walking upstream in the nearby river, the would-be geologist discovered a peculiar weathering pattern on the rock, which was stained with unfamiliar white deposits. Extensive tests failed to identify the substance or to explain the process of the unusual weathering of the river rocks. He brought the problem to Terry, who on visiting the site laughed. My friend, you found the place where our boys washed their clothes. You were looking at soap stains. The swimming pools. One interesting project undertaken by brothers and boys between July 1963 and May 1964 was the construction of a 20 metre swimming pool. Canute supervised the digging and sealing of the pool, while Terry directed the construction of a dam on the creek and a pipeline and water race which would feed the pool. It became something of a contest to see whether the water supply or the pool would be ready first. Terry won. The plentiful water supply from the nearby stream meant there would be a constant flow of fresh water into the pool after the construction of the dam and the water race. Canute describes the simple method of dam construction. Quote, to raise the level in the creek, we had 300 students from St Xavier's, St Martin's and from all over the place. Each student had to carry 10 rocks from the river to make this wall, supervised by Terry and me and the teachers. So we had 3,000 rocks. We didn't use cement. We just threw the 3,000 rocks in on a big slope, which created quite a pool of water. It used to run through the rocks, but after a couple of floods it was full of gravel. It was quite waterproof. Water just flowed over the top and we ran it off there. End of quote. The brothers used similarly in, similar ingenuity to excavate the pit for the pool, graded in depth from the shallow end to the deep end. Can you arrange the 88 boys in a rectangular grid? Eight students by 11 students to mark out the pool area. The taller students were assigned to the deep end, the smaller boys to the shallow end. Can you reminisce about what happened next? Quote, right, here are your shovels. Everybody dig a hole where you are. When you stand in it, it will be big enough so that your extended arms reach the sides of the hole and it will be over your head. We could do those things in those times. Slave drivers, you might call it. 
These holes gradually appeared all over the huge rectangle. Of course, the problem was, if you waited until the guy next to you had finished, it was easier to dig into yours. Anyway, there was a hole, a nice big hole eventually. Eleven boys with extended arms long, eight boys with extended arms wide, a huge hole in the ground. End of quote. Rocks and concrete formed the walls of the pool, while concrete floor slabs scavenged from derelict Japanese war huts formed the base. By 1 May 1964, all was ready, and water began to fill the pool. After they repaired several leaks, the official opening, an impromptu swimming carnival, occurred on 17th of May. Pool full with no leaks, crystal clear, had a swim before lunch a delighted Terry recorded in his diary several days later. In later years, while Pat Howley was headmaster, the teachers and students constructed an Olympic-sized swimming pool. By that time, the school owned a tractor, which helped considerably in the excavation. On one occasion, the local driver attempted a slope too steep for the tractor, which began to slip down the slope. As the driver leapt to safety, the tractor rolled, ending its spectacular slide upside down at the bottom of the future swimming pool. The lifting power of 20 or 30 students righted the tractor, a bent muffler and slightly twisted wheel being the only damage. The tractor resumed work on the excavations immediately. Such mishaps were all in a day's work. With the help of a brick mould, the teachers and students manufactured the 3,422 concrete bricks which formed the pool walls. To reinforce the brick walls, the students cut by hacksaw 182 metre length of Japanese railway line, part of the rail track the Japanese constructed between St John's and St Xavier's. The consumption of dozens of replacement blades annoyed the teacher in charge of the workshop, but the headmaster, Pat Howley, was unfazed. Only occasionally did Pat call a halt to the pool construction for the purposes of reassigning the limited workforce to other pressing tasks around the school. The brothers named this second pool Sakura, a Japanese word meaning cherry blossom, which was the emblem of the Japanese division on Kairu during World War II. Japanese ex-servicemen visiting Kairu made a generous donation towards the pool's construction cost. The pool served the school for the following 30 years. Communications and Transport The isolation of Kairuru, which appealed to the school's founder, Father Mueller, proved to be a formidable problem as the school grew. Later, the authorities considered relocating the school back to the mainland for that reason. When emergency transport was required at short notice, usually medical evacuations, the brothers radioed Wirui Mission headquarters for a plane. The first brothers used a large canoe, later fitted with an outboard motor, for transport to Wewak. In 1962, St Xavier's acquired one of St John's four boats, the Astrolabe, which the brothers renamed Marcelin. It proved to be a real workhorse, ferrying building materials, collecting food from villages and stores from Wewak towing a specially constructed pontoon when required for bigger loads. Terry became an expert in its maintenance. At times, Marcelin was used for fishing and picnics. 
Brother Andrew Morellini tells the story of one outing which went wrong. Quote, One Sunday, all of us, Terry, Canute, a couple of lay missioners, plus myself, decided to go for a boat outing to the mission station up the coast from one point on the mainland. About halfway across, somewhere well away from Mushu, the outboard motor shaft snapped. In those days, spare motors weren't carried. If a boat didn't return the same day, it was assumed the sea was too rough and that those in the boat overnighted somewhere and would come the next day. Our problem was that the Marcelin was caught in a current that would take us past the western tip of Kairu and perhaps we'd drift to somewhere in Asia. Only after a few days would a search be started. Aware of this frightening possibility, we took turns jumping into the sea and trying to swim the boat in the right direction. Then, as this was not working too well, we pulled up some of the flooring and seats of the boat and used these as paddles. We eventually did hit land, very close to the western tip of the island. Two or three of us climbed a cliff and worked our way through thick jungle before finding a path which led to St John's. Father Calis, later bishop, laughed and laughed about all this, and still does when I meet him. End of quote. Sports trips, scouts, bush camps. For some years, St Xavier's and other schools from the Sepik region explained sport- exchanged sporting visits with a Dutch school in Hollandia, now Jayapura, the capital of the former Dutch New Guinea. The last year of the exchange was 1962, as that was the year of the in- Indonesian takeover of Irian Jaya. Hollandia, Jayapura, is about 350 kilometres west of Kairu, just over the border of what is now Indonesia. The sporting exchanges, occupying an entire week, occurred in Hollandia and Wewak in alternate years. The well-organised competitions included soccer, volleyball, softball, swimming, athletics and other sports. Canute made the trip to Hollandia in 1960, while Terry participated in the final trip in 1962. Apart from some seasickness on the 24-hour boat trip, brothers and students enjoyed the Hollandia trips immensely. On the suggestion of Father Liebert, Canute established a scouting group at St Xavier's. Most weekends, Canute took a group overnight to the campsite he had established high on the mountain. They were relaxing times for the boys and for Canute, who admits that the scoutmaster learned more bush gills from his scouts than vice versa. Stories around the campfire at night were a feature of the camp. From the earliest days of the school, the different language groups established bush camps of their own where, in their free time, they could fish, hunt, cook their own food and, importantly, speak their own language. There were several language groups within the school as it drew students from all over the Sepik and beyond. The brothers encouraged the boys in this activity and from time to time promoted hygiene and tidiness by awarding prizes for the best-kept camps. Kairuru students in Australia 
1961, Brother Oliver Clark, the headmaster of Champagne College, Wangaratta in Australia, offered two scholarships for St Xavier's students to complete their high school education at his school. Peter Waliawi and Damien Sawabi were chosen. Both did reasonably well in Australia, while finding the change of culture and climate difficult. In the mid-1960s, four Kairuri students decided they wanted to become Marist brothers. Bernard Karandi, Kaspar Yakuyaman, Linus Idiwal and Peter Irok. They too travelled south to Wangaratta, where brother Magella Fitzpatrick was in charge of the Junorate section of the school. The juniors were those who intended to become Marists. They found it difficult at school, as their academic level required them to join a class of 14-year-olds, though they themselves were in their 20s. They found the Victorian climate bitterly cold. The four remained at school in Victoria for four years, and then returned to New Guinea. None went on to become a Marist brother. Two new arrivals launch into the deep. In mid-1964, brother Andrew Morellini arrived to assist Beckett, Canute and Terry. Enthusiastic and practical, the young Andrew was an asset to the school. Among other initiatives, he introduced the boys to Australian rules football. Andrew left Kairuru in 1965 to return to Australia. In 1993, Andrew, by then who had reverted to his baptismal name Peter, returned to the district of PNGSI, where he worked at Madang, then as principal of St Dominic's Rural Training Centre at Vanga Point in Solomon Islands from 1994 to 1997, and finally as district secretary at 16 Mile, Papua New Guinea, until 2001. Pat Howley, who was to become headmaster in 1968, replaced Andrew at the beginning of 1966. Pat recalls how he was recruited and describes his first impressions of the community. Quote, this was my first appointment to the district. Actually, I had applied to go to the missions much earlier, but nobody had ever taken any notice. When Beckett came down to Australia for a break at the end of 1965, he was pretty well exhausted and he came along to me and said, You've just got your BA and we need someone with a bit of education up there. We've got plenty of blokes out there who can drive tractors and all the rest of it. We need somebody who's an intellectual. That was a big joke because I've never been an intellectual. So I arrived at St Xavier's. We had an interesting staff there. There was Beckett, who was a real professional, but unqualified. We had Baptist, who was a great storyteller, to put it mildly. Canute, who was a live wire. And Terry Kane, who got things done. He was the tractor driver, boat worker, and just about everything else. Terry had, had the idea that he never wanted to be a teacher, but there was no choice. That's the way we worked. We had about 200 students at that stage. End of quote. At the end of 1967, Beckett, after six years of sterling service at St Xavier's as second headmaster, returned to Australia. He rejoined St Xavier's staff for two years in the early 1970s. As headmaster, Beckett had put St Xavier's on a sound footing in every way. 
He lifted the academic standards in the school, advanced the school to grade 10 high school, planned, designed and built functional solid classrooms, dormitories in the brothers' house, and strengthened the identity of the school. He resisted Catholic Education Secretary's intention of sending all St Xavier's graduates for teacher training, insisting on freedom of choice for the students. As he completed his term as headmaster, Beckett wrote insightfully, comparing his African and Kairu experiences. Quote, what is the future of our students, educated men, in the developing country of New Guinea? New Guinea has not been exploited in the same way as African country. There is no legacy of hatred here. New Guineans do not yet feel themselves as a nation, but that is growing. Their awareness and demands for consumer goods and equality are only beginning to be felt. The whole world is sympathetic to their yearnings. New Guineans have no overpopulation or land shortage problems. Unlike other places, they control their own land, crops and lives. They stand a very good chance of becoming a unified country. Our educated lads will be playing a major part. Already, our graduates are finding their way into the public service, higher branches of learning and politics. We hope, in these positions, they will have an influence for good on the whole country. Beckett taught his final years at Griffith, New South Wales, Australia. After his death in 1977, St Xavier's newly completed Assembly Hall was dedicated to his memory. Beckett brought the school to an early maturity and established its reputation throughout the CPIC as a fine institution of learning. Baptist launched the school. Beckett set it on a sure course. A new headmaster was about to take the helm.